And we were going to start with Premier's questions, and I'm going to call the Member of Parliament for Bury and Furness, Simon Fell. Simon Fell. Number one, sir. Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, I'm sure colleagues from across the House will want to join me in wishing everyone a very happy St. Patrick's Day. I was delighted to visit Northern Ireland last week, where I was able to thank military and emergency response teams for their brilliant work throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. Mr Speaker, this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others. In addition to my duties in this House, I shall have further such meetings later today. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, Mr Speaker, a decade ago, GSK announced a £350 million investment in my constituency, which would have led to 1,000 jobs. In 2017, they reneged on that, and a few weeks ago, they announced they were closing their business altogether. We've gone from the very real prospect of having 1,500 high-paying, high-skilled farmer jobs in my constituency to the risk of having none by 2025. Will my right honourable friend agree to meet with me and throw the weight of the government behind efforts to make sure that GSK does the right thing by my constituents and delivers for some very worried people? Yes. Prime Minister. I thank my honourable friend very much, and I want to uh, express my deepest sympathy to all those in Arveston affected by uh, these job losses and to say that I will certainly uh, meet with him. I believe that bioscience is one of the great growth areas uh, for this country in the, the future, and I am determined uh, that Barrow uh, and Furness should uh, take part in that uh, boom along with everywhere else, as well as other high technologies. Right, let's come to the Leader of the Opposition, Keir Starmer. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Can I join the Prime Minister in his comments about St Patrick's Day? My thoughts, and I'm sure those across the whole of the House, are with the family and friends of Sarah Everard, who will be suffering unspeakable grief. There are five words that will stick with us for a very long time. She was just walking home. Sometimes a tragedy is so shocking it demands both justice and change. The Stephen Lawrence case showed the poison of structural and institutional racism. The James Bolger case made us question the nature of our society and the safety of our children. Now the awful events of the last week have lifted a veil on the epidemic of violence against women and girls. This must also be a watershed moment. To change how we as a society treat women and girls and how we prevent and end sexual violence and harassment. I believe that if we work together, we can achieve that. And the questions I ask today are in that spirit. So first, does the Prime Minister agree that this must be a turning point in how we tackle violence against women and girls? Mr Speaker, yes I do. And I associate myself fully with the uh, remarks that the Right Honourable Gentleman has made about the appalling murder of Sarah Everard. I'm sure that uh, those emotions are shared uh, in this House and around the country. And that event has triggered a reaction that I believe is wholly justified and understandable. And of course, we in government are doing everything that uh, we can. We're investing in uh, the Crown Prosecution Service, trying to uh, speed up uh, the law. We're uh, changing the law on uh, domestic violence and, and many, many other things. But I think that uh, he is right, frankly, that unless and until we have a change in our culture that acknowledges and understands that women currently do not feel they are being heard, we will not 
fix this problem. And that is what we must do. We need a cultural and social change in attitudes to redress the balance, Mr Speaker. And that is what I believe all politicians must now work together to achieve. Keir Starmer. Uh, can I thank the Prime Minister for that answer? In that spirit, can I turn to the practical challenges we face if we are collectively to rise to this moment? The first challenge, Mr Speaker, is that many, many women and girls feel unsafe on our streets, particularly at night. What's needed is legal protection, and that's why we've called for a specific new law on street harassment and also for toughening the law on stalking. Both, I think, are absolutely vital if we're going to make meaningful change in the everyday experiences of women and girls. So can the Prime Minister commit to take both of these measures forward? Uh, Mr Speaker, we're always happy to look at uh, new proposals. Uh, what we're already doing is introducing tougher sanctions uh, on stalkers, uh, or that's already been, uh, been brought in, and we're bringing in new measures uh, to uh, make the streets safer. Of course, that's the right thing to do, Mr Speaker. Uh, last night, there was a, uh, a bill uh, before the, the House on uh, police crime and sentencing, uh, which did a lot uh, to protect uh, women and girls, which did a lot to protect women and, and girls, and it would have been good in a, uh, a cross-party way, Mr Speaker, to have had the support of the opposition. Keir Starmer. Mr Speaker, I'll come to last night's bill later, but it did say a lot more about protecting statues than it did about protecting women. But let me, if I may, given the gravity of the situation, continue in the, the spirit so far. And I thank the Prime Minister for his answer. The next challenge, practical challenge, is that many, many women and girls who are subjected to sexual violence do not feel confident to come forward and report what has happened to them. Nine out of ten don't do so. We have to, support, we have to improve the support that's provided for victims. The Victims Commissioner published a report last month with 32 recommendations about this. This week, Labour produced a detailed survivor support plan. And five years ago, I introduced a private member's bill with cross-party support for a victim's law to give legally enforceable rights to victims. The Shadow Victims Minister, my honourable friend from Hove, has tabled a similar victim's bill that's before Parliament now. It's ready to go. All it needs is political will to act. So will the Prime Minister commit now, not just to the idea of a victim's law, which I think he does support, but to a tight timetable, ideally six months or so, to actually implement such a law. Prime Minister. Uh, as I say, Mr Speaker, I'm very happy to look at uh, new proposals uh, from uh, all sides of the House on this issue, and that's why we're conducting an end-to-end -end, uh, review of the, of the law on rape and how it works and uh, investing in the criminal justice system to speed up cases and, and give women and girls the confidence that they need. And I think that the point he makes about... Uh, victims and uh, their need to feel confident in coming forward is absolutely right. And that's why we've put £100 million so far into uh, the services for dealing with violence against women and girls, particularly independent domestic violence advisors, independent sexual violence advisors. Mr. I don't pretend that these are the entire solution. They are part of the solution. But it is also vital, Mr. Speaker, that we have long-term cultural societal change to deal with this issue. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I agree with the Prime Minister on that last point. C can I 
gently remind him that for 10 years this government has been promising a victim's law. Yeah. I think it's been in his party's last three manifestos. It still hasn't materialised. We don't, Prime Minister, need more reviews, consultation strategies. The conversations our shadow minister is having with government, constructive conversations, are exactly the same conversations as I had five years ago. Constructive conversations. We just need now to get on with it. But let me press on with the, the, the practical challenges, because the next challenge is this, that for many, many women and girls who do come forward to report sexual violence, no criminal charges are brought. Only 1.5% of rapes reported to the police lead to a prosecution. Put the other way, 98.5% of reported rapes don't lead to a prosecution. That's a shocking statistic. I do appreciate that efforts are being made to improve the situation, but can the Prime Minister tell us what is he going to do about this, not in a few years' time, not next year, but now? Prime Minister. He's entirely right, Mr Speaker, in the sense that I, I agree with him. One of the first things I said uh, when I became Prime Minister was that I believe that the prosecution uh, rates for rape were a disgrace in this in this country, and uh, we need to, to sort it out. And yes, we're, that's why we're investing in uh, confidence-building measures such as uh, ISVAs and, uh, and IDVAs, and investing in the, uh, in, the, in the CPS, and trying to speed up the process of the, uh, of the law to give people the confidence their cases will be heard uh, in due time. Uh, but we're also doing uh, what we can to toughen the penalties for those men, and I'm afraid it is overwhelmingly men, who commit these crimes. And uh, I think it would have been a good thing uh, if last night the whole House could have voted uh, for tougher sentences uh, for those who commit sexual and violence offences and stop, uh, stop people, Mr Speaker, from being released early. And in that collegiate spirit, I would ask him to work together with us. Mr Speaker, I was Director of Public Prosecution for five years and spent every day prosecuting serious crime, including terrorism, sexual violence and rape. So I really don't need lectures about how to enforce the criminal law. But walking on through the system, as many women and girls have to do, and facing up to the challenges that we need to face up to a house, as a house, the next challenge is the point the Prime Minister just referenced, and that's the sentences for rape and sexual violence because they need to be toughened. Let me give the House three examples. John, John, John Patrick, convicted of raping a 13-year-old girl, he received a seven-year sentence. Orlando and Constanzo, convicted of raping a woman in a nightclub, they received a seven-and-a-half-year sentence. James Reeve, convicted of raping a seven-year-old girl, he received a nine-year sentence. Does the Prime Minister agree we need urgently to look at this and to toughen sentences for rape and serious sexual violence? Prime Minister. Uh, Mr Speaker, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if there was a bill uh, going through the House of Commons uh, which, which did exactly that? Uh, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if there were measures to defend women and girls from violent and sex criminals? Uh, tough, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if there was a bill before the House uh, to have tougher sentences uh, for child murderers uh, and tougher, tougher punishments for sex offenders? That, I think, would be a, a fine thing. Uh, as, it happens, as it happens, there is such a bill before the House. Uh, I think it would be a great thing if the right honourable gentleman actually had voted for it. Uh, he still has time. This bill is still uh, before the House. He can lift his opposition. They actually voted against it, Mr Speaker, on a three-line whip, and I think it was crazy. 
Uh, Mr Speaker, he mentions the bill last night. That provided for longer maximum sentences for damaging a memorial than the sentences imposed in the three cases of rape I have referred the House to, all of those sentences less than 10 years. I thank the Prime Minister. I thank the Prime Minister for providing me with the best examples of why the priorities in his bill were so wrong. And nothing in that bill would have increased the length of sentence in any of those rape cases. Nothing in that bill. But let me try to uh, return to the constructive spirit, because I think that is demanded of all of us. If this House came together on the points raised today, and there's been agreement across the dispatch boxes, it would make a real difference to victims of crime. This week, Labour published a 10-point plan. We published a victim's law. In coming days, we're going to publish amendments in relation to the criminal justice system to make it work better. Now, I don't expect the Prime Minister to agree with all of this. And frankly, I don't care if this becomes a government bill or conservative legislation. All I care about is whether we make progress. So will the Prime Minister meet me, the Shadow Home Secretary, the Honourable Member for Birmingham Yardley and victims groups who've spent many years campaigning on this, so that we can really and truly make this a turning point? Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, I, he, I'm afraid that he does. Uh, and I'm grateful to him for uh, the, the collegiate speech, uh, the way in which he's addressing this and the, and the way in which he's, he, he's reaching out a, across the chamber. And I think that's entirely right uh, in the circumstances. Uh, but I, I do think that uh, he should not misrepresent uh, what the bill was trying to do. The average sentence for rape is already uh, nine years, nine months, as he knows uh, full well. The, the maximum sentence is, is already life. What we were trying to do is stiffen the sentences for a variety of offences to protect women and girls and others. And that is entirely the right thing uh, to do, Mr Speaker. And we will go on with our agenda, delivering on uh, the people's priorities, rolling out uh, more police, uh, 7,000 we have already, investing in ISVAs and IDVAs and doing our utmost to accelerate the processes, the grinding processes of the criminal justice system, which, as he rightly says, are such a deterrent uh, to women in coming forward uh, to uh, complain as they, as they rightly should. Uh, but until we sort out that fundamental problem, until women feel that they are being heard and their voices are being heard and their complaints are being addressed by society, we will not fix this problem. And I warmly welcome uh, what he suggests about wanting to fix it together, uh, and I hope uh, that in that spirit he can bring himself to vote for the tougher sentences that we've set out. Yeah. Just to say, we've got to be a little bit careful because nobody will misrepresent each other in this house. Steve Double. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Can I thank the Prime Minister for bringing the G7 Leader Summit to Cornwall this summer? This will put Cornwall front and centre of the world stage as we emerge from the pandemic and give us a great opportunity to showcase all that Cornwall has to offer, not just as a great place to visit and our amazing food and drink sector, but in the technologies of the future in space and renewable energy. I know the Prime Minister shares my ambition that the G7 will leave a lasting economic legacy for the people of Cornwall. So to that end, and in light of the recent progress made on lithium extraction, would he work with me to secure a gigafactory for Cornwall so that we can produce the batteries and leave that lasting economic legacy and provide the well-paid jobs for the future that Cornwall needs? Yes. Prime Minister. Uh, yes, in, uh, of course, Mr Speaker. I think uh, Cornwall is the Klondike of of, of lithium, as far as I, uh, I understand the, the matter, and uh, I'll be delighted to assist him in, uh, in uh, locating a, uh, a gigafactory uh, somewhere near Cornwall, 
uh, Mr. Speaker, but I don't want to, I don't want to promise too much at, at this stage. Let's go to the leader of the SNP, Ian Blackford. Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker, and can I wish everyone a happy St. Patrick's Day. Mr. Speaker, for people across Scotland, this week again exposed a tale of two governments with two very different sets of values. Yesterday, the SNP government passed landmark legislation that will put the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child into Scots law, putting children at the vanguard of children's rights. In contrast, we have a UK government that has to be shamed into providing free school meals, that will clap for nurses, but won't give them a fair wage, and ploughs billions into a nuclear arsenal that sits redundant on the Clyde. Does the Prime Minister understand that the Scottish people are best served with a government that lives up to their values? A government Prime Minister that prioritises bears, not bombs. Prime Minister. Uh, I think what the people of Scotland need and deserve, Mr Speaker, is a government that uh, tackles the problems of education uh, in Scotland, uh, that addresses itself to fighting crime and drug addiction in Scotland, and a, a government in Scotland that weans itself off its addiction uh, to constitutional change and constitutional argument, and it seems determined to call a, in, the, in the middle of a pandemic when the country is trying to move forward together, seems determined and obsessed with nothing else, Mr Speaker, nothing else than breaking up the country and a reckless referendum. Yeah. Ian Blackford, Ian. Uh, Mr Speaker, thank you. Of course, this is Prime Minister's questions. The Prime Minister, maybe just once, just once, might start to try and answer the question that's put to him, because we're talking about a Tory plan to impose a 40% increase in nuclear warheads. Our children have the right to a future that no longer lives under the shadow of these weapons of mass destruction. As the Irish president said on this St. Patrick's Day, surely we need to find ways to make peace, not war. Every single one of these weapons will be based on the Clyde. So can the Prime Minister tell us exactly when the Scottish people gave him the moral or democratic authority to impose these weapons of mass destruction on our soil in Scotland? Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, the uh, people of Scotland uh, contribute enormously to the health, happiness, well-being and security of this entire country, not least through their contribution to uh, our science, our defences, uh, our international aid and many, many other ways. And I'm uh, very proud that this government is investing record sums in defence, uh, including maintaining our nuclear defence, which is absolutely vital for our long-term security, uh, and helping thereby to drive jobs not just uh, in uh, in Scotland, but across the whole of the UK. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Back in July last year, I informed the Prime Minister of the need for a new hospital in Doncaster. Sadly, Doncaster was not mentioned in the first 40 hospitals promised in the manifesto, but the building of a further eight specialist hospitals was. Yet, does my right honourable friend agree with me that a new hospital will prove to the people of Doncaster that this government is committed to building back better and levelling up their town? 
Prime Minister. My honourable friend is a fantastic advocate of, of Doncaster, and he's, he's right to, uh, to campaign in the way that he, he does. I wish I could uh, give him a, 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 you know, a, a cut and dried yes, and, yes or no answer uh, today, but I can tell him that uh, uh, his local trust is very much in the running uh, in the current open uh, competition for the next eight hospitals on top of the 40, um, Mr Speaker, that we're already building. Let's go to Caroline Lucas. Caroline. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The creation of a no protest zone around Parliament, a 266% increase from a maximum three months to 11 months imprisonment for protest organisers, a direct attack on the gypsy, Roma and traveller community, up to 10 years in prison for any offence committed by destroying or damaging a memorial and criminalising people for taking part in protests where they ought to have known police conditions were in place. Would the Prime Minister agree that if the UK is to be a force for good, in a world where democracy is in retreat, as his Foreign Secretary is saying today, it needs to start at home with the protection of the long-standing, precious and fundamental right to peaceful protest that is a cornerstone of liberal democracy? Prime Minister. She is quite right to uh, stick up for peaceful protest and uh, I, I understand that and I, I sympathise with that. Uh, but there, there are a couple of points. First of all, we're facing a pandemic, Mr Speaker, in which we have to restrict, uh, alas, we have to restrict human contact and, and, and although she shakes her head, I think that the people of this country do understand that. They do understand the restrictions that we're now under. And I think uh, we also have to strike a balance between the need to allow peaceful protest to go ahead, and we do uh, on a huge scale in this country, uh, but also to protect free speech, Mr. Uh, Mr Speaker, and vital parts of the UK economy. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. I also want to see the fundamental right to protest protected, so events such as that powerful vigil uh, last Saturday on Clapham Common can proceed safely, including Covid safe. But I also want to see measures so people can go about their lives, get to work, get to hospital without being hindered. So can the Prime Minister reassure me that that Police and Crime Bill, which we've been discussing today and was in the House yesterday, does strike that balance whilst also taking action against the perpetrators of some of the worst crimes? Prime Minister. Uh, my my honourable friend has perfectly summed up the balance that we're trying to, to strike between uh, allowing people in a reasonable way to go about their, their daily lives, but also bringing in tougher sentences for, uh, for child murderers, tougher punishments for sex offenders, and stopping the practice, uh, the continual practice of allowing people out early, Mr Speaker. I think that's what the people of this country uh, want to see. That's what they voted for uh, in 2019, and I hope that uh, the opposition can still uh, can bring themselves uh, one day to support it. Charlotte. Thank you, Mr Speaker. With the government's end-to-end -end rape review remaining unpublished two years after it was promised, rape conviction rates having fallen to their lowest point on record, and almost 90% of sexual harassment complaints not even reported to the police, Women are increasingly being left without legal recourse for sexual violence. I have parliamentary privilege. I can name the men who have hurt me. But millions of women in this country don't even have that. Stuck between a criminal system where only 1.4% of reported offences result in charges being laid and where too many survivors who speak out are pursued through the civil courts by their abusers to silence them, can the Prime Minister advise how women are meant to get justice? Prime Minister. 
Mrs. Speaker, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that she's completely right, and I know that she speaks for many people, uh, many women, up and down the, the, the country. And uh, what we need to do, we, we can do all the things that we've, we've talked about, uh, two men uh, arguing over the dispatch box, we can do all those things, we can bring in um, more laws, uh, tougher sentences, uh, which I hope she will uh, support. We can uh, support independent domestic violence and sexual violence advisors, all that kind of thing. But we have to address the fundamental issue of the, the casual, everyday sexism uh, and apathy that uh, fails to address the concerns of women. That is the underlying issue. Let's go to Fiona Bruce. Fiona. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Two years ago, the Bishop of Truro produced an interim report outlining the global phenomenon of persecution of Christians. As we make progress in our manifesto commitment to fully implement the Truro Review recommendations, does the Prime Minister join me in looking forward to our hosting the International Ministerial Conference on Freedom of Religion or Belief next year, and to the UK demonstrating its global leadership in defending and promoting this universal right for all? Prime Minister. I thank my honourable friend very much for everything that she's doing to campaign for freedom of religion and, uh, and belief, and uh, I'm very pleased that we're going to be holding an international conference on this uh, issue. Uh, that is exactly what uh, Global Britain uh, is all about. It's about promoting freedom of expression, freedom of belief and religion. Let's go to Peter Graham. Peter. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The Prime Minister refused point blank to answer the question from my right honourable friend from Ross Sky and Lochaber. So I'll ask him again. What is it that gives any British Prime Minister the moral and democratic right to impose the obscenity of an even bigger arsenal of weapons of mass murder on the people of Scotland against their express will? Prime Minister. Uh, Mr. Speaker, I think that was a veiled attempt to, again uh, by the, uh, uh, the SNP uh, to ask for a, another referendum, which is their, uh, their habitual uh, refrain. They, they, that is all they seem able uh, to talk about, uh, democratic uh, wrangling about uh, democracy and uh, their desire to, uh, to be separated uh, and to break up the, the country. I don't think that's the right way forward. I think we need strong defences. Uh, that's what the people of this country voted for, and that's what we're going to deliver. Let's go to Steve Bright. Steve. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. From, from gloom to joy and, uh, and news from the Winchester for the Prime Minister is that the vaccination programme is going really, really well. There are now less than 200,000 people in the whole of Hampshire and the Isle of Wight left to do in cohorts one to nine. And we have the, the plan plus the supply to cover them comfortably by the end of March. So would my rightable friend please thank the NHS and its volunteers here for this amazing effort. And as he does that, could he share with us his view on what led to the disinformation and apparent abandonment of scientific evidence in certain EU member states around the Oxford AstraZeneca jab? Prime Minister. Uh, I want, of course, I, I thank the, uh, the NHS in, uh, in Hampshire and indeed around the country for the amazing job that they're doing in rolling out the vaccination programme. It's been truly stunning. And I think perhaps the best thing I can say about um, uh, the Oxford AstraZeneca uh, vaccine uh, programme is that uh, I'm, I finally got news that I've got to have my own uh, jab, Mr Speaker, very, very shortly. I'm pleased to uh, discover. I'm, I don't know whether the right honourable gentleman's had his. He's had his. Uh, but, uh, but it will certainly be Oxford AstraZeneca that I will be having. Let's go to Garant Davis. Garant. 
Mr. Speaker, there's now been over 600 cases of coronavirus infections at DVLA Swansea SIP since September, yet ministers still refuse to meet with the PCS union to discuss ways in which workers, more workers, can work from home in safety before they're vaccinated. So workers have now resorted to voting for strike action as a last resort to protect their families and communities. So I ask the Prime Minister again, will he now instruct ministers to engage in talks with the union to help shield vulnerable workers before vaccination, or will he force a needless strike? Prime Minister. Uh, well, I, I think needless is, is, is the right word, Mr Speaker, and I think he should bear in mind that any strike is likely to be bad news for motorists. Uh, we're at the stage now where we want to have uh, advancing down our roadmap out of, out of lockdown and at the DVLA, uh, any staff who uh, can work from home are doing so. And currently, out of a workforce of, of 6,000, only uh, five cases uh, of COVID uh, have currently been found, and I understand that those individuals are all working from home. So, I, frankly, Mr Speaker, I see no need for industrial action. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My Kensington constituents and I have been deeply troubled by what is coming out of the Grenfell inquiry with regard to the building products industry. Does my right honourable friend agree with me that contractors who have behaved improperly should not be used going forward for government contracts? And will my right honourable friend consider a tax on the building products industry in the same way as we've done on the residential property sector as a way for partly paying for cladding remediation? Prime Minister. Uh, I, I thank my honourable friend, and I know how, how much she cares about this issue and how uh, deeply her constituents have been affected by the, the Grenfell fire. And um, uh, what I can say to her, I will study her, pro her proposal for a, a, a new tax uh, on building uh, materials, and uh, I know my right honourable friend, the Chancellor, uh, will, will want to think about that kind of idea. But we are looking at new rules to exclude uh, contractors uh, from government business uh, where gross professional uh, negligence has been shown, Mr Speaker. Let's go to Richard Bergen. Richard. Exactly one year ago today, we were told that 20,000 coronavirus deaths would be, and I quote, a good outcome. Yet our death toll is now six times higher. Over 100,000 more people have lost their lives than that initial Estimates. In March last year, the Prime Minister pontificated about taking it on the chin. Others acted decisively with lockdowns. But the Prime Minister dithered and delayed with deadly consequences. With the worst hopefully now behind us, isn't it time for the Prime Minister to hold up his hands and come clean with the British public and say, those deaths are on me and for that... I apologise. Prime Minister. Uh, well, well, Mr Speaker, I, I certainly take full responsibility for everything the government uh, did. And, uh, of course, uh, we mourn uh, the loss of every single uh, coronavirus victim. Uh, and uh, we sympathise deeply with their, with their families and, and, their, and their loved ones. 
And uh, am I sorry for what uh, has happened uh, to our country? Yes, of course, I'm deeply, uh, deeply sorry, Mr Speaker. And of course, there will be uh, time uh, for a, a full inquiry to enable us all uh, to understand uh, what we need to do better uh, when we face these problems in the future. And that is uh, something I think the whole House shares. Let's go to Dr Neil Hudson. Neil. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Five years on from Storm Desmond and a year on from Storm Chiara, sadly, Penrith and the border and Cumbria remain in the front line for severe flooding events. With climate change, these catastrophes are becoming increasingly frequent and severe, and the effects on communities are serious and long-term. Can my right honourable friend reassure my constituents that at-risk communities will be supported by government, both in terms of flood protection, but also with the longer term support, including in the important area of help for the mental health impacts of flooding. Prime Minister. Uh, my honourable friend makes a really good point about the mental health impacts of flooding. Anybody who goes to, or who's been a victim of flooding or who visits a family that's been hit by flooding will know the immense distress uh, that flooding uh, causes, and that's why the NHS will uh, get an extra uh, £500 million pounds, uh, to address uh, those issues and to give uh, more support uh, for, for, the, for the mental health needs uh, that people have. Liz Twist. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Prime Minister, in December 2019's election campaign, you visited Samantha Parker at her home in Darlington. Samantha has the rare genetic condition, PKU. You vowed to do your utmost to get her access to the life-changing drug, Kuvan, on the NHS. Use you, I'm not responsible for that. Apologies. Um, Prime Minister vowed to do his utmost to get her access to the life-changing drug, Kuvan. Last month, NICE published draft guidance which would make Kuvan available to children, but not to adults like Samantha. Great for children, but devastating and discriminatory for adults like Samantha. Prime Minister, speaking as Chair of the APPG on PKU, I now ask, what action will you take to deliver on your commitment to Samantha Parker and make Kuban available for her and for other adults with PKU? Prime Minister. I, I thank her very much for raising uh, the case, which I, I, I well remember. I'm glad uh, that NICE has now extended uh, the, uh, the treatment's availability to, uh, to children with PKU. Uh, I, I, clearly, we need to, to do more, and I will, I will be very happy to take it up. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Has my right honourable friend noted uh, that the integrated review has been widely and rightly welcomed as a bold British vision for our role in the world, uh, at the same time, but not in Scotland, of course, where the Nationalist Administration is, thinks it's more important to put IndyRef 2 on the ballot paper at the Scottish elections, does he realise that they are rejecting the jobs and security that this, his review guarantees in Scotland because they hate the UK more than uh, they want jobs for their own people? Prime Minister. Um, well, I, I'm grateful to my, my right honourable friend for his support for the integrated review. Um, I, I think that uh, 
I, I, it's hard to know what motivates uh, our friends in the Scottish uh, National Party, but uh, I do think that they're mistaken uh, in, uh, in their approach to this. I, I think that uh, we're better as one uh, united kingdom. Uh, I think that we're stronger uh, together as one united kingdom. And I think the contribution of uh, the people of Scotland to uh, the defence of our united kingdom is absolutely incredible and has been uh, for centuries. And uh, I, I, that's what I want to maintain. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a fine thing and they should champion it. Let's go to Tahir Halley. Tahir. Throughout the last year, NHS staff have been working tirelessly to keep our communities healthy and safe during the pandemic. Mr Speaker, I would like to ask the Prime Minister, why has he been economical with the truth when he says that a 1% pay increase is all the government can afford? Can, can I just say no honourable member on any side would actually mislead or lie to the House, but I'm sure the Prime Minister could answer something. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. No, I th and I'm, I'm grateful for your clarification because um, what, what we're doing is we're saying that we so value the incredible contribution of nurses to our country over the last year or more uh, that we want them, uh, exceptionally of all the public services, uh, to be looked at uh, for, a, for a pay increase at a time of real uh, difficulty in the public finances, which I think people do understand. Now, uh, that's on top of the 12.8% the increase in starting salary for nurses, plus the uh, the, the £5,000 bursary and the £3,000 that we've given for uh, special help for, uh, for childcare and, 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 and other training needs, and which actually are leading, if he looks at the figures, uh, they're leading to a, a big increase in the number of nurses uh, in, in the NHS, 10,600 more this year than last year, more nurses in the NHS and 60,000 more in training. And when I talk to nurses, what they want, uh, you know, of course they, everybody wants better paying conditions, I totally understand that, but what they also want is an extra pair of hands next to them to give them the help and reassurance they need, and that's what we're recruiting. The kick. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Recent horrific events have brought the important debate on women and girls' rights into the spotlight, and specifically their right to be safe and feel safe as they go about their daily lives. Does my right honourable friend agree that such issues need to be treated sensitively? And false claims made by the Labour Party last night on social media about the Police, Crime, Sentencing and Courts Bill are misleading and certainly not helpful. Yeah. Prime Minister. Uh, well, Mr Speaker, I think it was, it was certainly uh, a, a mistake and a regrettable mistake to, uh, for anybody to suggest that rape had been de decriminalised in, in this country uh, because, uh, because we must do everything we can to reassure victims of rape and sexual violence and get them to come forward. And that is what we're doing. And I also think it would be a good thing uh, if together uh, we could vote for some of the tougher sentences that we put forward in this bill. And I like the collegiate spirit that uh, uh, we had earlier on. I hope it can be extended uh, to voting for the tougher sentences that we put forward. Yeah. Another question, Gerald Jones. Yeah. 
Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. Today, the Welsh Labour Government have announced a special bonus payment for NHS and social care staff in Wales, with the Welsh Government covering the basic tax and national insurance payments so that most people will receive around £500. Will the Prime Minister today join me in welcoming this payment in recognition of the dedication and commitment of our NHS and social care staff? Prime Minister. I, I thank him, and I, I, I do indeed recognise the amazing dedication and commitment of, of NHS and social care staff uh, who have been at the forefront of this uh, pandemic, who have borne the brunt of it uh, in many cases, personally in, the, in their lives. And that's why I, I just repeat the point that I, I made a, a little a while ago about uh, what we're doing to recognise uh, the contribution of nurses in particular, uh, alone of all uh, the public sector in these very, very difficult times, and to say how uh, relieved and glad I am to see the number of nurses who are now uh, in training. I think there's a 34% increase uh, in applications to be nurses this year in the country. Uh, that's great, but we're going to drive it forward, Mr Speaker. We want to go, uh, as you know, we have a target of 50,000 more nurses as well as 20,000 more police. I'm suspending the House for three minutes to enable the necessary arrangements for the next business.